This is an ABC podcast. Hello and welcome again to Extra with me, Geraldine Doog, here on RN. But first this hour, talking about the economy. How are we going to debate that usefully? It's hardly been edifying this past week as the community watches shifts in the national budget amidst, quotes, apocalyptic screeching by anybody who stands to lose anything at all, as The Guardian's Catherine Murphy put it, and, of course, with the Reserve Bank being at the centre of it all. It's meeting again next week and worried homeowners plus renters are no doubt playing close attention. Interest rates began 2022 at just 0.1%. Now the official cash rate is 3.5%. How much higher? How fast? How much will changes bite? How will we talk about it? Well, the former Labor Minister and economist Dr Craig Emerson is closely following monetary policy and government policy, and he's been writing about it interestingly, and I'm pleased to welcome him to the program to discuss a range of issues affecting conduct of the economy. Hello there, Craig. Hello, Geraldine. Now, you argue, I mean, you argue a range of things, that two sets of figures in the last week or two confirm that the Reserve Bank is on the wrong track with its interest rate rises uh, or blaming the wrong culprit. (laughs) One of those is the number of unskilled migrants. Let's talk about that first. Why is that important to notice? Well, the unskilled migrants uh, coming to Australia, in fact, in Australia as a result of the previous government's immigration policy have the effect of putting downward pressure on wages. Now, as a humanitarian, you know, sure, it's great that we are doing our part with, um, you know, lower income uh, migrants around the world, but they do suppress wages. And the reason is that they are very, very easily exploited. They are sponsored by an employer and they shall do what the employer requires of them. And the consequence of that is it it puts downward pressure on wages. Um, We have about 30,000 a year uh, permanent migrants in the skilled category, but 1.9 million temporary migrants. And um, Claire O'Neill, a relevant minister in this, has called it out and said, well, how did this happen? And it just happened by accretion where the previous government said, oh, well, you know, there's more people to work in coffee shops and uh, fruit picking and so on, but it has actually depressed the wages of everyday Australians as well. And your point is that this is a structural change that hasn't been sufficiently factored in, if I understand you correctly, by the RBA that that several times cites fear of wage growth as to why they're worried about and, and, you know, have to harness inflation now. That's right. And you're saying this is a wrong reading now. It it is a wrong reading. It might have been wise in the past, but not now. Is that your point? uh, no, I'm saying that we should be very careful and mindful of our immigration program, its composition, but going to the Reserve Bank, um, they uh, keep talking about a wage price spiral. Interestingly, they turn, turned it around to a price wage spiral, who knows why, but they think that because we've got inflation, that will then all be picked up by workers who will demand pretty much an equivalent increase in their wages. Well, that can't happen when you've got this very large pool of unskilled temporary migrants who are readily exploited, and it isn't happening. 
and why I say that, that it seems they're living in the 70s, in, in the late 1970s, when we had centralised wage fixing, if prices went up, inflation went up by, say, 4%, wages went up by 4%, and then prices went up by another 4 and wages. So that's that spiral going up and up. Well, that hasn't happened for a very, very long time, and it does seem that they're living in the past. Where, you know, here we are in the... In the 2020s, and that's just not happening, but it seems to be in their forecasts. And how do I know that? There's a, a table that they published or a chart of their project, uh, forecasts of wages over the uh, 20 the previous decade, and they missed on every time. They over-forecast wage rises, and here they are again. It's as if they're waiting for reality to adjust to their model. The, the dire consequence of that for households and the economy more generally is that they are assuming that this wage price spiral is, is about to kick off, and they've now foreshadowed multiple further increases in interest rates. They are engineering a recession for Australia. And that will be a completely avoidable tragedy if they continue on this path. They are dealing with, we can see the figures though about inflation. There's no doubt about that, is there? Although, you know, there's, it's interesting right now as we speak sort of thing, they could be plateauing. Um, what does the Reserve Bank do about that? What, what lies in their remit? Because we heard Philip Lowe very eloquently, I thought, say, look, if we don't get this, if we don't, if we let this go, people start factoring into their expectations and that shifts the very people you're trying to you are trying to protect. Shifts How does focus. it factor into their expectations? They might say, I'd like a wage rise. Who wouldn't like a wage rise? Whether they can get a wage rise is the, re is the real question. And there's no evidence of a wage price spiral. But we have already been told that they are going to increase interest rates on multiple occasions. Yeah. So they're looking for something that isn't there. But what I'm and saying is they have got inflation. I mean, obviously it is supply side inflation, um, and uh, it's very it's very good point. So, very so good point. are they helpless in the face of that? Are they? Is that what no? You're... They've already been increasing interest rates. It was in May when they increased interest rates from 0.1 percent and started ramping them up, and some of them have been increases not of a quarter of a percentage point, but half a percentage point, and a lot of that still hasn't worked through the system. So why not pause and allow that to work through the system? There's a whole lot of people who are on um, fixed interest rates in, for their mortgages when the governor of the Reserve Bank said he didn't expect inflation, uh, the cash rate to increase until 2024 at least. Mm. So a whole lot of people went out and, and said, oh, good, I'll lock in this really you know, low um, commercial interest mm. rate, not 0.1%, but higher than that, but they locked it in. They're coming off now because those fixed rates last only two years in Australia. So there's a lot of pain in the system already. Still to come. And what the Reserve Bank is saying, well, let's just keep inflicting more and more pain because we think that there's going to be this wage price spiral, which so, has so, not been evident in Australia. So what are you proposing both they can do and I suppose I've got to ask, you know, what, what can the government do then right now as this cliff does well, in, emerge. Inflation is coming down, right? So don't make the cliff worse. 
by putting more people under mortgage stress. And you said something very, very important, that this is on the supply side. What that means is that there's there have been disruptions, we know that, to um, the importation of goods. Uh, container shipping has been hard to get. And in fact, the Reserve Bank says that up to three quarters of the inflation is due to supply side factors, which will and are being eased as the as we recover globally from the COVID nineteen pandemic and also from the the floods. And so, you know, what happened with lettuce? I'll give you an example. The price of lettuce went from a dollar fifty for a lettuce head to seven dollars. How do you deal with that? That's inflation. And the Reserve Bank effectively said, well, we've got to depress the demand for lettuce by making people worse off so that they buy less lettuces. Guess where the price of lettuce is now? Back to $1.50 because the floods have eased. And so when it's on the supply side, unless there is some sort of wage price spiral, which they've got from their textbooks of the 1970s, you just let that go through the system and that's what's happening. Inflation is actually coming down. They say that, but they want it to come down quicker and they want it to kill this wage price spiral that doesn't exist. Yeah, but okay, so you're saying that you would like, you think this coming week they could yep. pause it completely uh, and be, that's, that would be a prudent approach, you think? Yes, it would. Yes, it would. And I, I would be arguing for a pause. I argued for a pause at the previous one. But they're saying, no, no, we're not pausing. We're, we're going to increase not only this week, but um, several times, multiple times, and they'll kill the economy. I mean, sure, people don't like inflation. They don't like recessions either. And we do not have to have a recession, but the Reserve Bank is behaving as if that's the only way to control the price increases. It is not. Just let them flow through the system as they are, but don't crush the economy and don't crush people's livelihoods. It was quite interesting yesterday, you might have heard the head of the uh, the NAB, Ross McEwen, uh, yeah. saying on um, re- breakfast that he predicted two, he did predict two or three more interest rate rises right. in the next minute. He acknowledged growth had slowed, but he still thought Australia could avoid a recession. He thought people were making adjustments and would continue to do, do so, though he did say it's hard. Um he didn't seem uncomfortable with the RBA's move. Well, everyone's entitled to their opinion and I've got mine. And, I, I, you know, I lived through the 70s. I, and I'll tell you another big change that's occurred between the 70s and now when there was a wage price spiral. In the 1970s, the late 1970s, half of the Australian workforce was unionised and we had a centralised wage-fixing system. So back then, if prices went up by 4%, wages basically went up by 4%. because unions could get it through the Arbitration Commission. Now we don't have – the proportion of the workforce that is unionised is less than 15% and we have a decentralised wage-fixing system. So institutionally things have changed, but the, it's as if they're working on textbooks that were written on the basis of what happened in the 70s and early 80s mm-hmm. and that is not the, the, the modern economy of Australia. Craig Emerson, thank you very much indeed for joining us. Okay, thanks, Geraldine. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Dr now. Craig Emerson, uh, former Labor Minister and uh, economic commentator, and uh, your thoughts coming in thick and fast.
Well, up shortly, Australia's role in the regional assistance mission mission to Solomon Islands, Ramsey, uh, and its pertinence to today, one of the relatively few successful international interventions. Hi, it's Robbie Buck here, inviting you to join me on stage at this year's Won Adelaide. You'll hear music and culture from the southwest of France with San Salvador, Tibetan singer Yungchen Lamo, and Baylor Fleck alongside Abigail Washburn. Just a little of what's in store as the music show comes live from WOMAD. Saturday and Sunday from 11 here on RN. What happens when an international distress call goes out to the world due to internal collapse? Well, this prospect was tested 20 years ago in our region when Solomon Islands Prime Minister Sir Alan Kamakaza requested urgent international assistance from Pacific neighbours. The island's government was on the brink of collapse in the face of five years of rampant violence, ethnic tensions and lawlessness. Five months later, that assistance arrived in the form of Ramsey, the regional assistance mission. The 14-year-long mission is widely regarded as a success. Law and order was restored. It was, it's quite a story, but it's dropped off the public radar. We've forgotten about it. Well, Professor Michael Wesley seeks to remind us in his new book, Help em Friend, the colloquial name of the mission meaning help from friends, Michael is a leading scholar on Australian foreign policy and Australian relations with the region. Welcome back, Michael. Thanks very much, Geraldine. Before we start on your work, uh, you are in the place of the moment, India at the moment, which is where you're speaking to us from. Everybody's heading there, it would seem, judging by the, uh, the media in Australia. Does it feel like that? It sure does. So greetings from New Delhi. I'm here with the Australian Education Minister, Jason Clare. There are 10 Australian University Vice-Chancellors with the Minister at the moment, and we're on a a packed program of meeting with Indian universities. Uh, There will be five Australian ministers visiting India this month, including the Prime Minister, and there is a swathe of Indian ministers heading to Australia. I think there could be more ministerial visits both ways this year than probably over the past 30 years. So there's definitely something going on, Geraldine. Yes, and I mean, I read from the the Chanticleer in the uh, Financial Review that there's this terribly heavy Business Council of Australia delegation, you know, the head of the Macquarie Group, the head of the Commonwealth Bank, Andrew Forrest, Alan Joyce, Rob Scott from West Farmers and so on and so forth. There's always been sort of thought that India was the coming place and it's often just simply not lived up to all of the hype. Do you sense there's something different this time? I definitely do. I mean, I've never seen this level of both governments intent on building the relationship. I think it's got several wins at its back. Uh, Probably the most powerful one is the geopolitics of the region at the moment, which are drawing Australia and India very close. But there are also some remarkable complementarities economically, you know, socially, in the knowledge sector. I think finally the two countries are noticing each other and realising how much each has to gain from developing a strong bilateral relationship. And just before we leave this, are there any representatives, uh, big vocational education representatives there, along with all the university people? Because that's what India and uh, and other parts of the Asian region have been calling from us, our vocational education system, and we never seem to hear the call. 
Not so much on this delegation, Geraldine, although there are a number of universities that are dual sector universities, so universities and vocational education institutions. But I do think that that's another area that we can really grow in the relationship around vocational and technical education. Okay, look, let's leave that. Um, Obviously, very much a work in progress and turn to your book. Why has Ramsey fascinated you so much? Well, I would argue that it's Australia's most audacious and successful foreign policy initiative. Australia has been involved in countless interventions over the years, but it's really only led to, uh, it led the Interfet intervention into East Timor in 1999 and, of course, Ramsey from 2003 to 2017. Australia was really on the hook for Ramsey. It was the major contributor in terms of personnel, in terms of planning and in terms of money. And if Ramsey had failed, it would have been an Australian failure to have pulled off what Australia did in Ramsey, an operation of astounding complexity, and to leave Solomon Islands a better country than we found it in 2003, I think, is should be celebrated as one of our biggest foreign policy successes. The so-called troubles in Solomons began as an ethnic conflict between the Gwale of the island of Guadalcanal, where the capital Honiara sits, and the Malaitans of the neighbouring island of Malaita, who had settled on the main island. What was the spark that started this conflict and how fast did it get out of control? Essentially, it was a conflict over land rights, Geraldine. As you say, the the capital Honiara is really the big centre of economic and government activity. And it acted as as a kind of a magnet for people from all over Solomon Islands. The real conflict occurred because a lot of people from the island of Malaita, which is the most populated island in Solomon Islands, had moved to Honiara and its surrounds and had really taken up residence there on what Guales saw as their traditional lands. In 1998, there was the Asian financial crisis, which caused a crash in the Solomon Islands economy. And there were also a number of local politicians who who decided to weaponise the growing resentment over, you know, the land rights tensions. And from 1998, you started getting groups of young Gwale men using violence and intimidation to evict Malaitans from what they saw as their traditional lands. Mm. And it was a very complicated situation in those last years of the millennium. Maybe you could just distill the sort of political environment and the difficulties confronting the reformist coalition government, which was led by the Malaitan Prime Minister, Bartholomew Ulufa'alu. Obviously, the Gwale started to evict Malaitans and the Malaitans reacted. They formed groups such as the Malaitan Eagle Force. And you had, by the year 2000, the capital Honiara was really a Malaitan stronghold. There were armed checkpoints to come into the capital. There were gunfights and the use of heavy weapons uh, around the capital, people being killed. And then in June 2000, the Ulufalu government was toppled by a coup that was staged by the Malaitan Eagle Force. That was when Australia and New Zealand brokered a peace deal in Townsville and sent in unarmed peace monitors. That largely didn't work because the militants didn't give up their weapons. What it did was it took largely took the ethnic uh, element out of the conflict and 
Honiara descended into armed lawlessness, so armed gangs going around and extorting money, mainly from the government, to the stage where government officials were being held up and money was being demanded of them. And really, the economy went into free fall and 30% of the population of the island of Guadalcanal were displaced from their homes. It was it was utter chaos. And at what point, you know, the, the really terrible story, uh, the, the beheadings, there were some mm. beheadings, which I think was just incredibly dramatic for Australians to think about. When did that occur? That occurred in the aftermath of the 2000 coup. The key figure here was um, Harold Keke, who was a really un- an unhinged Wale warlord who um, took his followers to the weather coast, which is on the other coast of the island from Honiara. It's a wild, desolate, uh, rugged place that can't easily be reached by land. And he really terrorised that area and assumed this kind of mythical demon-like status the Melanesian Brothers Church sent six of their priests into the weather coast to try and broker a peace deal with Keke, who was very religious himself. And in the end, he had ended up beheading those priests as well as the local uh, elected member for, for the area. So it became very, very gruesome. Okay, so into that uh, brew, we decided we'd move. Australia decided in this radical shift in policy you make at the point, where for, for years the orthodox position was a respect above all else for sovereignty with regard to international affairs, you know, don't get involved. So explain to us why this was such really a brave move by Australia. It was. Um, Australia, since the Fiji coups of 1987, when the Hawke government had contemplated intervening in that, that first Fiji coup, it had been told in no uncertain terms by Pacific Island leaders, you do not intervene. We are not going to contemplate any sort of neo-colonial redux here. So Australia had adopted a very hands-off approach in the Pacific, providing aid and advice, but nothing more than that. 2003 was a remarkable period. The Howard government was in office. There had been a number of successful interventions or what looked like successful interventions into East Timor. It looked like at that stage Afghanistan was going well. And of course, we were contemplating an intervention into Iraq to topple Saddam Hussein. So this was an age of interventions. It was an age where governments like Australia's were worried about failing states and uh, worried that failing states would become the harbours of terrorists and other transnational threats. And so when John Howard got that letter from Sir Alan Kemikaze that you mentioned, he thought, and he rang Alexander Downer and he said, look, I think we need to do something about this. And really it was Downer and Howard that really encouraged DFAT and the other government departments to think a bit bigger about what Australia might be able to do. And that was the thinking that ultimately led to the Ramsey intervention. Yes, I mean, there's a lot I'll hop over. The critical role played by the very early Aspie under Hugh White, uh, a reporter, yes, co-author, right. setting out how a multinational intervention would work. And I'm going to hop over to the complicated sequence of events that put 
Mr Sogavari returned as Prime Minister. And the reason I want to go to that is that he was clear in his opposition to Ramsey, wasn't he? He saw the mission as a front for Australian control of the country. Why did he oppose the intervention? I mean, and does that have ramifications right to the present? By 2006, when Sogavari came to power, it was very apparent that Ramsey was being successful. It very quickly quelled the violence, got the weapons off the streets, arrested the militants and restored a level of public calm and trust. And of course, this made it enormously popular among ordinary Solomon Islanders. Polls showed that between 80 and 90 percent of Solomon Islanders consistently saw Ramsey as a good thing and in fact trusted it a heck of a lot more than they trusted their own government and their own elected politicians. And it became very clear by 2006 that the elected politicians were feeling very threatened by this. They worried that Ramsey was more popular than them, that it had more legitimacy than them, and that it was, let's face it, getting closer and closer to discovering you know, some of the shady deals that were keeping some of the parliamentarians wealthy and in power. When Sogavari came to the Prime Ministership in 2006, he was really a a lightning rod for a growing level of antagonism towards Ramsey among elected politicians. He thought this was a political winner for him. He was very much the front of that element of Parliament that said, let's defang Ramsey, let's take a lot of its powers away, and let's delegitimise Australia's leading role in the mission by accusing Australia of, of, you know, neo-colonial designs on the country. Ramsey wrapped up after 14 years in 2017 and it's widely looked upon, I think, as a great success, but there are certain things it did not manage to achieve. What would you Mm. say were its failings? I guess its failings were failings by design, you could say, Geraldine. First of all, it took a decision that it wasn't going to become involved in the politics of Solomon Islands. The the politics of Solomon Islands are complex and really are based on very old traditional politics of patronage. So that the idea of the big man is a very old Melanesian concept. The big man is the person who controls the resources in village-based society and distributes those resources as favours to what are called his his wantoks or his close followers, and they in turn support him. By and large, politics in Solomon Islands still revolves around that, only the big men are now parliamentarians. And so that politics of patronage is, is something that continues to bedevil Solomon Islands politics. And of course, Ramsey mm. wasn't going to go anywhere near that. The second thing Ramsey didn't do was to address the land rights sources of the conflict. There was no mandate within Ramsey to work with traditional owners and settlers to work out a settlement in terms of who could settle where. And once Ramsey had restored law and order, what we saw was the return of malightened settlers to the very same settlements that they had been evicted from. So arguably, those roots of the conflict are still there and could flare up at any time. Yes, final question. Knowing what you do, having researched this, would you say there are some key ingredients, so to speak, to achieving a successful foreign intervention? Yes, I would. Um, Very careful planning. Ramsey was meticulous in, before it went in, it had planned the operation down to the last day. 
it was so meticulously planned that within a month it had taken the guns off the streets, arrested the militants and restored law and order. And that set up the absolute conditions for success after that. Close knowledge of the of the country, which had been built up over decades, was absolutely crucial. And I have to say, really deft handling of the politics and diplomacy of keeping a coalition of all of the Pacific Island countries on board, managing public opinion in your favour and dealing with sometimes a very resistant and difficult political class. I think all of those were handled beautifully within Ramsey and we should be taking and building on those factors of success as we deal with a much more complex region today. Well, thank you very much, Michael. That's a very interesting overview, uh, just a snapshot of of really what happened uh, and the sort of complexity of it is, yeah, quite breathtaking, actually. Thanks very much for your time. Thanks, Geraldine. But Professor Michael Wesley, and his new book is Help Em Friend. Uh, it's published by Melbourne University Press. Melbourne University Publishing, I think it's called. He's from the University of Melbourne too. Well, up next, the fight for the Russian soul. What does the average Russian think about the war in Ukraine? That's a common question, isn't it, of the last 12 months? And the answer can seem both surprising and confusing because probably the bulk of Russians still support the war despite the terrible, terrible casualties that are being inflicted on them. How much, though, do we really grasp the backdrop to this, the epic drama of this giant nation's history with such acute cultural divisions, marked especially by suspicions about the insidious seduction of the West, of the sort that prompted Vladimir Putin's amazing rant last month, just before the first anniversary of the invasion. Here's part of his two-hour address in Moscow. We are bound to defend our children, and they will do that, will defend our children from degradation. It's obvious that the West will try to break apart our society, to stake on those who have the same poison of contempt to, to their homeland and the wish to gain from selling that poison to those who want to, are willing to pay for that. Now, of course, not all Russians take this view, but Putin is tapping into a major 200-year or so debate within about the virtues of traditional Mother Russia versus the perfidious West, or more precisely, can Russia emerge as modern without losing its soul? Sheila Fitzpatrick's an Australian historian with a long record of recording modern Russian and Soviet history. I think we need her to explain some of the long background to this debate that so preoccupied Russians right up till now, it would seem. Welcome to the program, Sheila. Thank you. Now, that rant, if I can put it like that, from Vladimir Putin, with the acute fears about the poison of the West, and more than mere military fears, in other words, much more existential cultural fears that he was expressing, that has quite a history in Russian life, does it not? It certainly didn't start with Putin or even post-Soviet. Can you sketch where it began in your judgment? Well, where it began or when it began, that would be a very long time ago because concern about the West are both a desire to emulate it and a fear that of, of what you might get, of uh, what kind of moral corruption might come from the West. That goes back a long way. 
And indeed, we can find it quite a lot of it in the Soviet Union. In the Soviet Union, uh, the, the the sort of formal position was uh, we're a communist country and we're opposed to the West because the West is capitalist. But along with that went a lot of rhetoric about various kinds of what they would sometimes call degeneration uh, hmm. in the West, that they didn't, cultural degeneration, uh, like formalism in music, that they didn't want infecting the Soviet people. I've, I actually want to go back even to really Peter the Great, isn't it, who was, you know, in the uh, 17th century, 18th century actually, um, and he really became, did he not, obsessed with the European Enlightenment about building, um, for instance, a Russian imperial navy from scratch, wanting to fundamentally modernise the country and do it fast, to transform it into European power. That was really his dream, wasn't it? Yes. Well, that desire to modernise along European, uh, Western European patterns, that's as typical in Russian history as the fear of contamination from the West. So Peter the Great throws open, says we're going to westernise. He, 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 he makes the nobles cut their beards off so they look more Western and start dressing in, in, in Western-style clothes. And there's pushback, of course. There's resentment about it. He, he succeeds in opening that window to the West, but at the same time, it sparks a sort of nativist rumbling resentment, uh, which becomes a feature of the landscape in Russia. Yes, he really led a cultural revolution of his own, didn't he? And, and again, terribly fast, just like, you know, in a way um, happened in Turkey too, when Ataturk did the same thing. And inevitably, the traditions reassert themselves, don't they? That's right. Do it. The Russian way, and, and not only the Russian way, as you point out, uh, any kind of autocratic way is probably... Uh, do it fast, uh, do it from above, be absolutely definite that everybody's got to jump into line. It may work, as with, it did with Peter, but at the same time, there's always some kind of resistance left. Mm. I mean, um, the, you could, because it was pretty successful uh, from Peter the Great down through a range of successes, including Catherine the Great, but then there was this huge controversy, as I understand it, and I'm in your hands here, between the Westernisers and the Slavophiles in, a, I think it was 1825, and there was a publication of a philosophical letter by one of the thinkers, Pyotr Shadayev, arguing that Russia belonged neither to the West nor to the East, neither to Europe nor to Asia. So this was out in the open, was it, and really quite fervently argued? Yes, it was. Uh, on the other hand, this is an, argu an argument between a very small group of basically Western-educated intellectuals. So it's, it's very much remembered because of its sort of symbolic importance, but I wouldn't say it involves large uh, groups of the population. And I would say that all of those people, including the ones taking the Slavophile uh, side, are actually the products of a more or less Western education. Now, the underlying fear here is always uh, on, on, the, on the westernizing side, if we don't westernize, we're going to be backward and we're going to be Asiatic. That's not a good thing in the Russian lexicon ever. Now, the Slavophiles are saying, no, no, that wouldn't mean becoming Asiatic because we've got our very own uh, thing to contribute, that uh, Russian soul of which one hears a lot. Uh, so that's the argument, but I do think it's an argument of a small group of intellectuals. 
And if we hop forward to the arrival of uh, the writer Tolstoy, Leo Tolstoy, and he became this extraordinary character, a sort of combination of priest and prophet and radical (laughs) political character. And he, of course, in War and Peace, this famous uh, use of Natasha's dance, his central female character, who speaks French and is immensely sophisticated. And then she discovers traditional Russian dance within the villages and her life changes. Now, that's almost a sort of a, uh, a symbol of both types, isn't it? R- really br- uh, sort of battling each other for prominence in the Russian soul, if I could put it like that. <laughs> yes, I suppose it is. And Tolstoy himself, uh, who is, uh, well, with him, it's not only just giving up the West, it's giving up complexity of life in favour of a simpler, truer kind of life uh, that, that peasants, in this case, Russian peasants, but you know, in principle, one could have said any peasants li- live. So that's combined in Tolstoy with personally being a part of that westernised French-speaking aristocracy. And that persisted. I mean, I want to know, I'm again sort of trying to do a timeline here in terms of this, the, the power of this leading to Putin. What did Lenin and the, and the Bolsheviks think of all of this? Well, the Bolsheviks are westernising modernizers uh, initially. That's if you look at the ideology, they're saying uh, that, well, admittedly, we have to jump capitalism, but we've for sure got to get out of backwardness. We've got to industrialise and do it as fast as possible. And that is the, uh, the programme that Lenin is standing for and Stalin too, with the, the, the first five-year plans, collectivization and so on. These are all in support of this westernising, uh, of this modernising programme, which is implicitly a westernising one. However, countervailing tendencies develop within that, including that the extrapolation from a dislike of Western capitalism uh, to a feeling of the possible contaminating effects of Western culture. I don't think you'll find that ever in Lenin, uh, but you certainly find it in Stalin and those around him. And religion played a very important role here, didn't it? The the Slavophiles were Orthodox Christians and the Westernizers were either atheists or sort of worshipped a political creed, didn't they? Or they, they had their own personal faith. Is that how you'd put it? Yes, well, I, uh, orthodoxy is the is the, the popular religion, as it were. It's the predominant religion, and I suppose most of the Slavophiles were orthodox in a way. I mean, in, in within the intelligentsia, church-going and observance were, in a sense, not that that common. But yes, the Westernizers are usually agnostics, or sometimes atheists, or sometimes uh, like Tolstoy with a, a sort of personal. Uh, a personal creed. Mm. So let's hop forward then to all the chaos of the post-Soviet era. There were still questions about what did it mean, what does it mean to be Russian and not Soviet? And does that inexorably lead us to uh, someone like Putin choosing to talk about the poison and pornography of the West? Yes, I think it's very hard to imagine when the Soviet Union broke up, leaving Russia as on its own, that you wouldn't get a kind of cultivation of a Russian nationalist feeling. I mean, where, where else is there to go under those circumstances? Uh, but the resurrection of an idea of Russian soul, uh, that was almost instantaneous. It's very interesting. In the process of the collapse of the Soviet Union, uh, there were, of course, some 
anthropologists, American anthropologists out in the field looking at what's happening. And one of them reporting back from Siberia and around uh, in the early 90s says suddenly everybody is talking about the Russian soul. The soul is what distinguishes us. And that Russian soul was not a, a concept that you that was really welcome in Soviet times, but it, it, it jumps up immediately, almost before uh, a sort of coherent nationalist ideology has emerged. But as I say, I think that a kind of Russian nationalism uh, was uh, almost inevitable, uh, that it would be linked with the Orthodox Church, also almost inevitable under the circumstances. And whether it had to come with this very conservative approach uh, to sort of personal morality, I guess that's uh, that remains a question. But the Soviet stance, the the the, the, the one, the argument Putin is is making or alluding to that the West is uh, is totally decadent, as you can see uh, from the fact that they've even lost touch with uh, whether women are women and men are men. That's another. Uh, Putin quote. I think that's not just Putin. That is a, a widely uh, that awakens quite a wide response in Russian public. So, um, when I read, for instance, that passionate letter that came from Mikhail Khodorkovsky, the former oligarch whom uh, Putin jailed, and uh, Kasparov, Gary Kasparov, the chess man who's very radical, saying uh, openly, "There is another Russia." Do not give up on Russia. This was a, was written about three weeks ago. There is a Russia of the future, not the one that Putin represents. Can you see that having any call on a big number of Russian citizens or just a small number at the top or what? Well, it doesn't seem to have any content, does it? I mean, no, I, I can't. But uh, but perhaps if it were linked with, linked with something a bit more uh, specific. What could it link to? Well, I'm not quite sure. Uh, well, I don't really well, know where they're, that's where they're going with that other than other than that they're against Putin and they think they, they hope there would be an alternative. But one of the problems about the about opposition to Putin has been the failure to develop a clear sense of what that alternative would be. So is there only a vacuum? Is that what you're implying at the end of Putin at the moment that you can see if there was an end of Putin? Well, I would... <laughs> Putin would presumably finally uh, indicate some, uh, I mean, there would, a successor would emerge. I'm not quite sure about a vacuum. I think something Putin-esque might well continue. But if one is talking about has a viable alternative with a different sort of ideological base and a different attitude to the West and a different uh, attitude on, on these moral questions, has that emerged? I'd have to say no. It hasn't emerged. Mm. No, of course, but it may. So maybe there we can have our optimistic ending. <laughs> Let's hope somebody's got to do it, one hopes. Uh, look, <laughs> Sheila Fitzpatrick, thank you very much indeed for uh, doing that explainer for us. Okay, thank you. Sheila Fitzpatrick, an historian of modern Russia. Um, one of her most recent books is The Shortest History of the Soviet Union. I'm told it's very popular with Australian high school students. Uh, other titles, Mishka's War, On Stalin's Team and The Russian Revolution. That's a story we're going to hear more of. Well, up next, the fascinating world of fungi. Over the past three decades, we've kept a campfire. Started in Alice Springs in 1993 and tended by some of Australia's best journalists. 
I'm talking about Away. Join artists and former presenters to celebrate how Away has deepened the national conversation. Away, Saturdays at 6pm on ABCRN or hear it now on the ABC Listen app. Yes, one of our listeners has just said Solzhenitsyn, the, the great radical anti-Soviet man, was railing against Western decadence and Russian decadence until the day he died. He was indeed. <laughs> it was always quite uh, bracing to read. Well, our last topic may intrigue a number of you. Fungi. It isn't often talked about in glowing terms, but our last guest today, ecologist Alison Pulio, says we're having a fungal awakening and marvels at its majesty. Her new book, Underground Lovers, is a fascinating tale of how fungi holds our forests together and why humans are deeply intertwined with these unruly renegades of the subterranean. Hello and welcome. Good morning, Geraldine. Uh, Part of this fungal awakening is that fungi is increasingly being used, Alison, and I'm really learning from you, in products. (laughs) Can you run us through some of the uses, please? Absolutely. So we're now seeing people like bioengineers recognising how they can take the fungus mycelium, that is not the mushrooms themselves, but the actual fungus organism, that tapestry we see under the soil. You might have seen it, Geraldine, if you've scratched around in the compost or the leaflet, you'll see these feathery web-like network. That's the actual fungus organism. They're taking that part of the fungus and creating all sorts of things like alternatives to plastic because we can grow these in moulds. We can put them in a mould, feed them agricultural agricultural waste and create a lovely piece of packaging or a brick or something to use in construction or packaging or even in fashion. We're seeing now vegan leather being made from mycelium as well as the great suite of different edible fungi. We used to just have those you know, classic button mushrooms in the supermarket. Mm. Now you can get over a dozen varieties of commercial edible fungi. So I think we're really expanding the range of different ways we use fungi. And then there's the burgeoning industry, I understand, of psychedelic fungi and microdosing, which which is being what's that? Yeah, well, so for a long, long time, we've known about the, the particular chemical properties of particular fungi, particularly a group known as the, the psilocybe, and they have compounds that can help people who have all kinds of distress, mental distress, perhaps post-traumatic stress syndrome or depression or other mental illnesses. And so now there's been some change in legislation and we've got some wonderful researchers working in Melbourne and in Sydney to help people who have these, these sorts of problems to overcome those using fungi. So fungi, we've known for a long time, think of things like like penicillin or other compounds that are used, fungal compounds that are used to help people who've had organ transplants to stop the body rejecting them. We use fungi in those as well. But we're now, again, really expanding the possibilities with fungi in medicine and pharmaceuticals. Uh, How do you define fungi from other organisms? Basic (laughs) question. It's a a basic question and it's a really complicated, well, it's a tricky answer because often they're defined by what they're not. We often say a fungus is a plant without chlorophyll or it's a disease of animals, but we 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 really struggle sometimes to actually define what fungi are. I mean, fungi are simply fungi. They're not animals. They're not plants. They feed in a similar way to how we do. They don't use the sun. They actually digest organic matter. We do it inside our bodies. They do it outside their bodies by sitting in the organic matter in the earth, but they're not using the sun. So often they're thought to be like plants, but they're more similar to animals, but they're like plants in that they don't run around like animals do. But we technically... We say they're the eukaryotic heterotrophs, but that term is really, oh God, really no, thanks. <laughs> That's That's so I like to say they're not animals, they're not plants, they're simply fungi. But they don't use photosynthesis. 
They don't. So they actually digest their food through enzyme secretion. We put food into our mouths, it goes into our stomachs, we secrete enzymes to break that down. Fungi do it exactly the same way, except they secrete those enzymes directly into the environment and then they absorb the nutrients they need. So we call this external digestion. So really, we're more closely related to them than plants are. How extraordinary is this? <laughs> that is really very interesting. Because, um, I mean, really, I think fungi has a bit of a bad rap, doesn't it? Um, Look, they They've got such a bad rapture and historically they've been so maligned because they were associated with things like witchcraft and with those dreadful people called women because women were often the keepers of fungal law and, you know, they'd appear suddenly, then they'd disappear and all kinds of amazing mythology rose around them to do with the supernatural and to, to do with witchcraft and, and they have compounds that are hallucinogenic and ones that are deadly toxic. So I think, you know, they've had a bad rap for a long time. We don't even have language to refer to them. You know, we don't even have a proper vocabulary. If you think about it. If something's doing really, really well, say the economy or a love relationship, we say that's blossoming and blooming or budding. We use botanical terms. But if something is going wrong, say we've got crime increasing, we say it's mushrooming. You know, we use the term negatively. (laughs) (laughs) Ah, um, I mean, in your book, um, Underground Lovers, you write about, you particularly do write about women and their relationship with fungi. Why has that so intrigued you? I guess because I looked at the tables of contents of all the other books on the popular books on fungi. We've had about a dozen appear in the last couple of years on fungi. And I looked to see what people wrote about and I realised there was all these areas that weren't covered. And the role of women in mycology was one of them. And we we know about the men who discovered fungi and named them, but oftentimes it was the women who were collecting them, describing them, illustrating them, submitting them to herbaria. But those women were never mentioned. They were never acknowledged for their work. And so I wanted to give those women some credit and some recognition. And we have an incredible, I say amateur mycologist, only amateur because she's unpaid, right here in Australia who's discovered 20 species and she's submitted all 5,000 species What's to her different name? herbaria. Her name is Pam Catcherside, and she's based at the Herbarium in Adelaide. But we don't know these names, so I'm really trying to showcase the role of women in contributing to our knowledge of Australian fungi, but also internationally there's women too, such as Beatrix Potter, who contributed over 1,000 amazing watercolour paintings and illustrations of fungi. But most of us only know of her as a children's oh, book I've illustrator. Seen, I think there's a, a museum display down there in, in Adelaide, actually, about this. You're just reminding me of what I've seen, actually. Indeed, yeah. And so I, mean, I was just really trying to get, you know, the role of women and to showcase the amazing work they've done historically to give them a voice. And what about Australia's first people's knowledge of fungi? That's another thing that's uh, got you in. Absolutely. So, again, looking through those tables of contents, I thought possibly, you know, we we could have the oldest knowledge of the utilitarian use of fungi in the world right here in Australia. It's often attributed to the Chileans or the Chinese and their knowledge certainly goes back 10, 12,000 years. But possibly our knowledge here in Australia could go back 60,000 years. So I've been working with some wonderful Yorta Yorta aunties up on the Dungala or the Mighty Murray River, talking to them. I've been working with another fabulous woman, a Yongu woman up in East Arnhem Land to see if we can retrieve what knowledge they have. And they've been so thrilled to share their knowledge and to try and get that knowledge out into the public. But sadly, most of it is gone. But it's still been amazing to talk with them. Uh, You've travelled the world exploring fungi. And one of our listeners has said, her husband said, fungus is the singular, fungi is the plural, but obviously fungi is what is generally described. Um, uh, Tell us about some of the most captivating places you visited, if you would, please. 
<laughs> Look, I think most of them are right here in Australia, Geraldine. I mean, certainly to go to places like the glaciers of Iceland and the Alps of Switzerland and the Pacific Northwest of America, there's all kinds of amazing different ecosystems and the different fungi they harbour. But I think here in Australia, if you think of some of our kooky plants and animals, things like platypus or echidnas or kangaroos, they're you know very extreme organisms. And also our fungi are as well. They've adapted to the vagaries of our very changeable climate and our very harsh and extreme conditions. So I think some of the most curious of all, such as the glowing ghost fungus that I use in the cover of the book, are right here in Australia. Just tell us more about this glowing ghost fungus, please. (laughs) So on the cover of the book, you may have seen it. There's this incredible green coloration. And this fungus bioluminesces, which means it produces, it glows in the dark by its own chemicals. And this image was taken just by the glow of the fungus. And we don't really know why it glows. We thought maybe it's to attract insects, to help disperse its spores, but they did some studies and they found that that wasn't the case. Although a five-year-old friend of mine, she said to me, those fungi glow so wombats can find their way through the forest oh, at night. So I, I quite like sweet. her. That's lovely. <laughs> All right, Alison, um, thank you very much indeed for informing me. I do appreciate it. Thanks so much for interest, Geraldine. Alison Pulio, who apparently is really, you know, they're being chased, these people who know about fungi, uh, by publishers. Her new book is Underground Lovers, uh, Encounters with Fungi. It's published by New South Publishing. Now, just a mention, I had, we had quite a response to our discussion last week with Hannah Barnes on gender reassignment or reaffirmation surgery, and it sparked some very considered responses to our website, several parents especially outlining their experiences, pretty harrowing. I think it's fair to say that there's evidence of a variety of approaches in different clinics around Australia. This is not a straightforward, settled approach or story. I think it's fair to say. So I do appreciate uh, your responses very much indeed, and we can't cover them in total detail. Um, But thank you very much indeed for your time today. And that's it for Extra with me, Geraldine Doog. Thank you for your company today. And I do hope you can join us again next week. Bye-bye for now. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.